Welcome to the American Prospects Generations podcast in which uh, senior members and not quite so senior members of the Prospects staff discuss uh, areas of, of, of common interest. I'm Harold Meyerson. I'm the editor-at-large of the American Prospect and someone who's been covering labor issues and worker-related issues since, I think, uh, the days when Samuel Gompers was in Rompers. Uh, and now my colleague. Hi, I'm Jerry Facundo. I'm a writing fellow for the American Prospect, and I have been with the prospect in some capacity since January 2021. And in that time period, I have uh, covered quite a bit of labor issues. And among those, uh, early on, when I was an intern at the prospect, I did a oral history on worker centers um, that was originally assigned to me by you, Harold. I and know. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really cool first project to do as an intern. So I guess my the first thing I wanted to ask you about was like from when you first started out as a journalist, how has like the coverage, how has coverage of the labor movement evolved? And I guess alongside that labor journalism, too. Well, you know, I uh, I am a judge of the Sidney Hillman Foundation, which gives awards for socially conscious journalism. And uh, until recently, it's been giving uh, awards every couple of years for lifetime achievement in writing labor history. And I remember uh, about 15 years ago sitting there while uh, Melvin Dubofsky, a very uh, excellent and uh, prominent labor historian, uh, received the award. And he was saying that uh, when he was a grad student at Harvard around 1950, um, and he was doing a labor history dissertation. There was virtually no one on the Harvard faculty who was a specialist in, in labor history. And I was sitting there and thinking, gee, in 1950, there were like no labor historians, maybe one or two or three. Uh, but there were about 150 papers, daily newspapers that had labor beat reporters. And what I was thinking was, gee, now there are probably more than a hundred labor historians on college and university campuses, and maybe three labor beat reporters. Uh, you know, it was Steve Greenhouse at uh, at the New York Times being the most prominent, but the Washington Post had dropped its, and the Chicago Trib and the L.A. Times had dropped their labor beat. Uh, and this was a sort of a function at the time of sort of thinking that labor had more history than it had a present life. Uh, organizing had pretty much stopped, save in a, a small number of, uh, of unions. And when I started out writing about unions, it was sort of mainly the existing unions' political campaigns I dealt with, sort of for the simple reason that there was very little organizing going on. Um, there were worker horror stories, certainly, that we covered. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that's always a constant there are, are uh, you know, dangerous workplaces, as you have written about. Uh, but, uh, you know, from my perspective, and I was at the LA Weekly throughout a little, from a little before the 1990s to a little after the 1990s, this was maybe the most active and important labor city at the time in the country, but it was mainly 
for uh, the fact that uh, the L.A. County Federation of Labor was playing a much more important role in elections, not union elections, in election elections. And by mobilizing a lot of the immigrant community, uh, the Latino community and the Asian community, it was playing maybe the decisive role in, in, in moving California from a purple state to a blue state. Now and then there would be some great organizing campaigns. And I, I kind of cut my teeth on the Justice for Janitors campaign, which took all kinds of sort of theatrical forms, including, you know, the janitors parading down Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, uh, stunning onlookers and prompting some of them to run out and give the janitors money, which in Beverly Hills you could do. I mean, it was sort of like spontaneous redistribution uh, based on individual social guilt. Uh, but th- those were the exceptions. Mainly, I was writing about unions in politics because they weren't organizing. And the kind of climate that you've encountered, um, that we've all encountered, but that you've been writing about in your uh, time at The Prospect, uh, we weren't seeing that. Um uh, Talk some about, you know, what you've encountered and what not just the worker horror stories, but the organizing uh, things that you you've seen in, you know, in your your time uh, with us. Definitely. In late 2021, I had the chance to cover uh, the Kellogg strike in Battle Creek, Michigan, and what what was probably the most um surprising component of the whole the whole battle that was going on is that if you once you actually talk to these workers like who were actually on the picket line that they're not they they weren't on strike over wages or benefits it it came down to the two-tier system and or the two-tier contract system and basically um, the way that the way that it was relayed to me by the workers on the picket line was that some of these some of these guys that have been on have been with Kellogg for like the past two or three decades and every single time when it came for contract uh, negotiations they were like whittling away um yes like the benefits and the pay structure but it was really like an attack like on the union itself it was trying to like squash it out of existence so and i remember like the most uh one of the most vocal people on the picket line was like, was saying that, um, that he's actually losing money being out on strike. Like this is, has nothing to do with him. This is entirely about for an entire, for a new generation of union workers who are having the, the wages, benefits, and just like dignity on the job stripped from them in this contract, which for them came down to what felt like life or death in these cases. Like, and one of the, the other thing that was like really, um, I want to say like misunderstood in like, especially like local reporting is that these jobs are hard and they're not really asking for, Oh, I don't want this job to be easier. Like these people know that they're going to sign up for 12 hour days, weeks on at a time. Like one person I talked to specifically said that he only has 4th of July and Christmas off. Like otherwise this this plant like runs through and through it this entire time. And it wasn't like an uncommon feature to hear that this is how people work. And I mean, yeah, I think that's like probably I, I, that's when I really like uh, 
understood that like when it comes to covering labor, it's not just about like these worker horror stories. Like those are like a really like important piece of it, but it's about this like legal structure that is bent against um, workers. Yeah. And in uh, Battle Creek's neck of the woods in Michigan, of course, uh, two tier contracts uh, were something that came out of the auto company bailouts after the 2008 financial collapse when the government uh, essentially intervened uh, at, at General Motors and Chrysler. Uh, you know, and this has been this has been a real management tool, uh, uh, you know, to uh, end whatever solidarity there may be in the workplace. Uh, you know, in, in, in many workplaces to ha- uh, have a, a permanent workforce and a temp workforce, which is very frequent in, uh, in, in, in corporate America. Um, was, was there some sort of wider sense of, you know, that Kellogg was part of this, you know, what was both a Michigan trend and a national trend that, that uh, people were uh, you know, we're, we're, management was sort of gunning for unions, uh, uh, you know, uh, but, but by, by doing this as a way to, uh, you know, divide the workforce and to limit the number of workers who would actually be union in the hopes that eventually the union could be voted out. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was like, that was like really the core of it. But what made the, the 2021, 2022 contract so interesting was that it was actually, like a four tier system. Like there was already a two tier system in place that already divided, uh, generationally speaking. And like the big promise of it was that, Oh, when one of these legacies, so somebody who's grandfathered in retires, the longest running temp worker will be able to take that spot. But it's like, if, if you ran the numbers, like it was mathematically impossible for there ever to be a full time, um, legacy work staff. They would, they would be phased out for this new tier that's created. And what ha- what was eventually passed in the contract that was ratified, like further divide the temporary workers who were clinging for the last of the breadcrumbs. And when I was like talking to people, there were, there was a lot of, uh, it, it really felt like a loss despite it being, like celebrated in like a lot of places like, Oh, they're finally The strike is finally over. Uh, they got these pay increases. There is more going towards healthcare, but like the actual like strength of the union itself is, has, has really taken, has really taken a beating. And what was really interesting too, is that like battle Creek is like the original headquarters for Kellogg. Like, so these workers there, they, if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't them, it was like their um, generations before them who know how the companies, they, they know the company's tactics in previous negotiations where as the other two plants, I think, I don't remember where exactly they were located. I, I think one was in Omaha, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that sounds yeah, correct. Yeah. That sounds correct. Where they just weren't as used to these like strong arming tactics by the company where they said like those guys over there, they're probably like, they're probably a lot more worried about like what's going to happen, but like we know that this is just like these are just scare tactics, and if this contract is ratified, it's going to be because of the other plans. Which was like an interesting fracture to see that it's um, th- these battles really take place within um, within a fir- like within a single firm itself. 
And how do you like, how do you build that solidarity across different, uh, different locations? Like that was another really like interesting component. Well, was there much presence of the international union uh, that you encountered that was sort of either trying to reassure workers about their solidarity in the other plants or pretty much were the, did these guys think they were just sort of there on their own, as it were? There was definitely a disconnect between between those two, where if you just took uh, the international's like statement as is given, it's like, oh, there are modest increases. But once you start talking to rank and file, people who are really like into this, they're like, they'll, they would poke the holes through it. Yeah. Okay. And I guess like one of the, w- one of the things that I kind of wanted to like go back to and ask you about is like, there's been like a resurgence of like how like labor is covered today. And I guess what would you, what would people who read labor coverage today, what would surprise them most about how the labor movement like operated like in from like the 50s, 60s and 70s? Like what's what was going on there? Well, um, both a great deal and not nearly enough. I mean, you know, uh, there were insiders in labor who as early as the 1950s, the high point of labor, when labor had, uh, you know, more than a third of the workforce organized as opposed to 10% today and just 6% in the private sector, but who noted that labor had still failed to expand into the South uh, and that, you know, unions uh, were, were kind of just simply not organizing. Now, t- then and now, it is still the case that most unions still uh, aren't organizing that much because of deficiencies uh, in the law. But if you look back at not just what I was writing, but what labor journalists in the uh, uh, 70s and 80s were writing when I when I started writing. Uh, well, you know, first of all, I mean, the, the union coverage of the 1950s at the apogee, at the high point of American unions is largely treating unions as this huge power structure. C. Wright Mills uh, wrote this book uh, about new powers in America at the end of the 1940s, and he mainly was writing about the UAW, which, yes, really was a power in America uh, at that time. Um, and if you look at the popular media of the 1950s, and again, this is obviously I'm – toddler and a little kid in the 1950s. But if you look at it, labor is treated as, you know, just, a, you know, a, 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 a large, often corrupt establishment. And of course, it was the Teamsters beginning in the late 1950s who got a lot of coverage for being corrupt, and that did not help labor's image. Uh, but if you look back at the things that I and my colleagues were writing about in the 70s and 80s. This is the time when the AFL-CIO under George Meany and his successor Lane Kirkland were really had abandoned organizing efforts. There's a famous quote from Meany, uh, the organized fellow is the fellow that counts, meaning, you know, we've got ours and they'll set the pattern for others. Well, they didn't set the pattern for others and eventually they ceased to be uh, powerful enough even to, you know, count among themselves. Uh, so if you look back at the coverage, a lot was about, you know, what the AFL-CIO was focused on, frankly, which was the Cold War, 
backing the Vietnam War uh, and, 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 and so on, which led to a real split in American liberalism that really wasn't mended until decades later. It was about how Meany and his cohorts were not all that well disposed to the social movements that arose in the 1960s, uh, the women's movement uh, and the environmental movement and others. Um, we're, we're talking, Jared, just a couple days after the death of Tom Donahue, who was uh, Lane Kirkland's number two guy. And, uh, and who's Lane, Lane Kirkland? Kirkland? Uh, yeah, who was – well, Kirkland succeeded Meany. Okay. And then a revolt broke out against Kirkland in, right after the 1994 elections when Democrats lost control of the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years. Uh, and note that it was a political event that caused this revolt. And eventually Kirkland stepped aside and his number two, Tom Donahue, who was really quite a conscientious uh, uh, guy, not, you know, who's who's sort of sense of what it meant to be a union leader extended well beyond Kirkland, who focused mainly on foreign policy. Uh, uh, Donahue had the role for a couple of months until he was uh, defeated by uh, John Sweeney, who was an old friend of his from SCIU. Sweeney, you know, came in and stressed the revival of organizing. I remember there was one debate between these two candidates for the AFL-CIO presidency. And, uh, Donahue took Sweeney to task for having his union, in effect, the Justice for Janitors wing of his union, uh, you know, do these kind of disruptive street demonstrations, uh, one of which had blocked one of the bridges over the Potomac in, in here in Washington, maybe the 14th Street Bridge. Uh, and Donahue said, you know, I think we should be building bridges, which he meant politically, uh, not blocking bridges. And Sweeney said, I agree with you, except there are times when things are so urgent, you have to block a bridge. And look, looking at this debate, what is it? Uh, 30 years later, almost. This was uh, 28 years ago, I guess. What, what, uh, strikes me most is that, um, obviously at different times and places, both of them were right, but neither approach uh, was sufficient to stop the erosion of unions because in many ways it wasn't a question of what tactics do you use. It was that the law was against you and you didn't have the kind of popular upsurge you're seeing now. Now the law is still against it and the popular upsurge can only go so far. But we have polls now showing, you know, 70% support uh, in the public uh, approval ratings for unions, which hasn't been the case since the 1960s. So that was a very different time. And, you know, a lot of this focused, a lot of what we would write about focused on, on these, uh, conflicts that were emerging, uh, between, uh, the more activist wing of labor that Sweeney for a time personified and the, uh, you know, the Meanie Kirkland regime which was, you know, said to have more agents abroad than the CIA, uh, seriously, uh, you know, and that, uh, uh, you know, Kirk, there was a famous, famous meeting shortly after Bill Clinton became president. Uh, he called in the executive council, of the AFL CIO and said, okay, what's on your mind, guys? And we're all, they were all guys at the time. And 
Kirk, they had an hour. Kirkland spoke for 45 minutes about uh, the Polish Union's solidarity. That left 15 minutes for everything else, which was, you know, <laughs> directly affecting American workers. Uh, and uh, this was, you know, th- th- this, was, this was kind of a stultified thing. And I would be writing about foreign policy differences among the unions, whereas there was a, always a core of progressive unions that were more open to the left uh, that opposed Reagan's wars in Central America. And there were floor fights on these issues uh, at, at the biennial AFL-CIO conventions, which I, you know, some of which I covered. So uh, it was really almost as much a policy uh, focus uh, rather, you know, than a, a, a rank and file focus. And also after Reagan busted the air traffic controllers in 1981, Unions stopped striking. Um, you know, it's been remarkable, uh, it's beginning with the teachers in recent years, that the strike has returned to the arsenal of American workers. But this number of, not just organizing, but the number of strikes uh, just continually diminished throughout, uh, you know, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, and the early 2010s, uh, to the point where, you know, it was you would never assign a person to a strike coverage beat because there were hardly any strikes. Yeah, so what that, strikes I, have you covered? Well, the the strikes I've covered have been, uh, you know, when I was in L.A., the most interesting were the janitors and the hotel workers, both of which I should add were militant unions, almost completely uh, composed of immigrants. Uh, uh, the janitors, as I said. You know, uh, did a form of street theater. Uh, you know, they would, uh, go up and down the streets banging drums and winning a lot of public support because obviously they were doing, you know, people knew they were doing kind of arduous jobs at low wages. That was the assumption. The issue with janitors, I think, and, and, you know, one of the things the Justice for Janitors strikes, uh, accomplished, both strikes and organizing. I'll explain that connection in a minute. Uh, was simply, uh, you know, making themselves visible. Uh, you know, it was uh, the case that if people thought about janitors in office buildings, they didn't think of them much differently than they thought of, you know, uh, the carpeting or the wallpaper. Oh, yeah, they're there. Uh, so simply by calling attention in an odd way to their existence, um, you know, once you acknowledge their existence, you there you tend to acknowledge. Oh yeah, they they do arduous work and they're underpaid. Uh, so that, that those were remarkable uh, campaigns, and the the thing that they did, the innovation and the the, the coordinator, coordinator nationally of of this the Justice for Janitors effort, Steve Lerner should be credited for this. Um, they didn't really you know attempt to sit down with the janitorial companies. They said, you know, they said this is between us and the real estate companies that own the big buildings. Um, and, you know, they were right in having that target and under enough public pressure, uh, they would, they, they would win. And the, the great thing about being in LA was that the head of the local AFL CIO, uh, from the mid nineties on, a guy named Miguel Contreras, who I think remains the one political genius I have found in the labor movement. You know, is 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 the guy who really, as I said, mobilized 
uh, you know, uh, the unions politically to politicize the immigrant, Latino, Asian, et cetera, communities, which really changed the politics and therefore got a lot of Democratic Democrats elected as a result of this uh, to come out for them when they went on strike. And I remember uh, a bargaining session at the strike of 2000 with the janitors uh, and the building owners where the janitors came in you know, and sat down in, in the company of the Speaker of the State Assembly and, and a bunch of folks sort of saying, hey, you know, we, uh, we have some very damn powerful allies here. So that was part of it. The, the other thing that's been really remarkable uh, in sort of unions I've covered is the uh, hotel union in Las Vegas, the uh, Culinary Workers Local 226 of uh, then the hotel and restaurant employees and now Unite Here is, is the name of that union. They had an incredible combination of uh, uh, solidarity. Um, there was one hotel they struck, which was treating workers abysmally and refused to go union. I mean, uh, the f- frontier, uh, which, you know, the workers stayed out for like eight years and uh, stayed on the picket lines. And eventually management gave up and sold the hotel to a company that uh, said, okay, we're okay with the union and we'll give you guys some raises. Uh, so that that's part of it. But both in, in their negotiation, both the janitors and the hotel workers, two separate unions, uh, were able to kind of win contracts, which enabled them to organize more. And that's crucial. The janitors got the building owners in L.A., uh, many of whom own the big office buildings in Orange County, which is the county next to Los Angeles, uh, to agree to card check for the janitors in Orange County. Similarly, the jan- the uh, hotel workers in Las Vegas, you know, early on uh, in the 90s and 2000s, there was a whole generation of new owners of the big hotels in Vegas the mob hotels pretty much sold out to uh, legitimate businessmen who might have been as rotten as the mob. But, 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 but uh, the union not only showed this incredible solidarity uh, at uh, the Frontier Hotel, but also said to management, look, um, we know you need some help on tax law. Uh, for, for, foreign big shot gamblers that come into Vegas, uh, aren't required, uh, really to pay taxes before they leave. There's a bill before Congress. You need some democratic support. We will lobby for that. Uh, they, they, they said to, uh, Steve Wynn, who was building most of the new hotels in Vegas, just let us get car check in your new hotels and the Bellagio and the Mirage, et cetera. And he said, okay, I really want this bill to pass. Uh, it, it'll get us uh, uh, more revenue, uh, he said. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, so we'll give you card checks. So th- there are all kinds of techniques, both confrontational and not, that, uh, that uh, the, the, these, these, unions, uh, these unions have. You know, Jared, a question for you. You, uh, as, as your Battle Creek story uh, sort of illustrates, y- you grew up in, uh, in Michigan and went to college in Michigan and all of that. Now, Michigan historically 
you know, once upon a time was the great union state, largely due to the United Auto Workers. Is there any, I mean, was there any consciousness of that by the time uh, in your brief life or had that already faded? It was, it was, you know, was there any sense of, gee, this used to be union terrain and gee, workers once got decent contracts, if not at Kellogg's and at least at auto plants. What about that? Hey, it's Ryan Cooper, managing editor here at The Prospect. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Prospect Generations, but I also invite you to enjoy our affiliated podcasts. Alexi the Greek and myself host Left Anchor, where we discuss politics, theory, and the left with the best writers and thinkers. You can also join comedian and prospect contributor Francesco Fiorentini for The Bituation Room, a humorous roundup of the week's news with plenty of bitching. You can find Left Anchor and The Bituation Room wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to The Prospect as a Power Level member, you can unlock bonus content for each of them. What a deal! For more information or to sample the shows, visit prospect.org slash podcasts. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think... It, unions like existed in the in the zeitgeist, I suppose, but um, it wasn't until after my my grandfather passed away that I learned that he was in a union. Um, he back in like the I don't know when when the factory opened up, but it was a Brunswick, which the bowling company, the bowling and pin maker, they had a. They had a factory located in West Michigan and Muskegon, Michigan. And that's where my, my, my grandpa, he was a, he grew up in the, through the Great Depression. And after going uh, to and from different like agriculture, farm working jobs, this, a job at this factory was like the top thing he could have gotten. And what's really like, I think important in like his case specifically is that. He never learned how to read or write and couldn't really speak English. And yet, uh, being able to be in this union, um, for almost like, I think like 20, maybe almost 30 years, we have a, we have like a, a commemorative bowling pin that he got after his retirement. But there was one time, uh, it was only in the last two years that my grandma told me that there was an instance when some, after some corporate restructuring in like the mid to late nineties, uh, the company, they tried like moving him from working on the assembly line to some sort of position that would have like required him to like write out reports and basically in, delegating tasks that he would like fit like mentally and physically be unable to do. And this turned into this huge fight where his steward like fought tooth and nail for months to get him moved back to the original job and like recover lost wages after like six to eight months of putting him on this design to fail. And there's, there's no other entity that could have ever, that would have ever done that. You know, if this was not a union shop, he probably would have been canned within a month or less than that. And the other like lasting um, impression. Well, and how did that turn out? Uh, did, did the union prevail and get in getting him to keep his job? Is yes. Job? Yeah. Yeah. He was like reinstated to his old position and like got back wages for the six to nine month period that this, uh, that this happened, that, that, that happened. And then um, the process of like getting him back to the other job. So it was like a massive lump sum, but it's like, I mean, this, he, that's just one, one worker, you know? And what I, I, what I think like makes this like 
story just like so like remarkable is that um to this day like i said he he passed away in the early 2000s and nowadays my grandma still collects his uh his pension and if she only had to live off of her social security it would barely make like ends meet like and it's just kind of illustrative of how the outsized impact a union job can have for a family like they both my grandma and him, like they were migrant farm workers before that situation. And it kind of like the, that impact like reverberates even into what I was able, what I'm able to do today. And that was like, but aside from that, like there, the whole idea of like unions is like almost bizarre to me. Like most of the, most of my family, they, they had worked in like migrant sort of work, which is like notoriously um, exploited. So it wasn't really until when I was in college where I got to talk to people who, I mean, Michigan State University, it's, it's a lot of like middle class students who go there. And just like through the friends I made, I like learned that, oh, they're like, these are like union families. You know what I mean? Like this is the kind of, uh, or if, if, even if they weren't there, like maybe a generation away from it. So it's like, it, it yeah. exists, you know? Yeah. What what was the union that your grandfather belonged to? It was UAW, actually. Uh-huh. I don't know the uh-huh. local, but it was a U- it was UAW. Uh huh. The uh, United Bowling Pin uh, Manufacturers Union. Okay. All right. Well, the UAW now uh, is uh, going gangbusters, organizing uh, colleges and universities. Uh, Say so they just organized uh, the grad students at USC, the University of Southern California, which historically in LA was the most Republican uh, big university in uh, uh, in California. So uh, times are times are changing. So where, where do you where do you see uh, uh, the, the labor Gener- the the labor journalism of of your generation going and what what you know I mean you're dealing with a significantly different terrain certainly than the one that I dealt with when I started writing about about unions I mean what sort of you and your your generational peers what you know how would you characterize you got you folks and uh, uh, your outlook on uh, on the labor beat I think it's really Interesting because like in the circles that I ran, like my social circles that I ran through in college, like we were all like politically oriented types. Okay. Either we really like fall into like two different camps. I, I love to say that, um, anybody who did like volunteer work for like students for Bernie or whatever are now adjacent to labor in some way. So like there's either there's like those of us who have gone, who are like in journalism and media who are like covering uh, workers from the outside versus, and then there's like this other like cohort who have decided to just go into salting or trying to organize like workplaces. I, yeah, looking at my, um, the core group of people that I did like my campus Bernie organizing stuff with about a third of us are in journalism of some sort. Another third of us went into, uh, labor organizing and then, um, others kind of just are working on like progressive campaigns or like left wing campaigns that obviously, um, kind of just cross over into labor through one point or another. And I think like this, it's 
it, it, there's, I don't think there's like any doubt of like how the, how the battlefield is tilted toward employers. But the fact that you're seeing these organizing drives happen in places that have like the highest turnover, like I, I'm aware of, or I should say some of the, the, Ch- the Chipotle union, like the fast food thing, they, those organizers, a lot of them I know are like former, uh, Bernie campus organizers from a different college in Michigan. And it's, it, it's a, it's a very small world, but whenever, whenever I hear about like some organizing happening, whether it's like a Trader Joe's or like an Amazon, a Starbucks or something, I always like hear like this little connection to this Bernie world of people who learned how to do this organizing or they learned like the centrality of worker rights. It's it's interesting. You know, the, uh, well, the, the union organizers of the 1930s, uh, you know, uh, tended to come out of the left parties of, of that time. The Ruthers came out of the socialist party the other organizers for UAW came out of the Communist Party. Uh, th- those seems to have been, without any ideological characterization here, that seems to have been the uh, uh, generational equivalent of the Bernie campaign uh, uh, for, for for this generation. And I, I, I suspect that's that's fairly common if you look at the history of, you know, which is the modern history of union organizing in the corporate age, I think you'll find, uh, you'll find that. Um, and it, it's been my experience that, you know, the, the labor beat reporters whom I knew who were older than me and retired or, you know, my contemporaries, uh, all tended to be, uh, you know, progressive one way or another. I think that's a sort of a self-selection a self-selection process that is common to your generation, my generation, the generation older than me, and probably the generation that's younger than you. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, that that's sort of a component of, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the progressive mentality. Yeah, there's, uh, actually before, before the prospect, I, um, when I was like looking for jobs, like right after college, I had, I only got to the first round of an interview for an organizer position with UFCW. Um, I think I just didn't have the experience they were looking for then, but like that was kind of where I was oriented and toward looking at what I wanted to do then. I will tell you a, a, a UFCW uh, story. Well, a couple of them. One is that uh, this is not a union historic that, you know, in my earlier period of covering unions uh, was really particularly known for uh, organizing or, but they sometimes had to strike. Uh, And one of the reasons they had to strike was that they had, excuse me, they had supermarket contracts in metropolitan areas where Walmart was coming in and Walmart was obviously undercutting the unionized supermarket chains on price, uh, and the unionized supermarket chains essentially were telling the workers, you got to go down, if not entirely to Walmart levels, you know, you got to get a lot closer to it. And it took, it, 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 it's, you know, 
taken unions uh, a while and some difficulty to get the clout to resist that. And there was a disastrous strike in the early aughts of, I think, about the 70,000 workers uh, covered by the master supermarket contract in Southern California, where they got clobbered. And this this actually led to a, a, a different, better generation of... Uh, uh, union leaders coming into, uh, coming into the USCW, not a moment too soon. Uh, in terms of, you know, just problematic union leaders, I, I am reminded of a story I did for Dissent magazine back in 1984. And that, that kind of the 1984 Democratic primary pitted Walter Mondale, who was the first Democrat to get a pre-nomination endorsement from the AFL-CIO against Gary Hart, who was uh, kind of one of the new generation of Democrats who viewed himself as post-union, in some ways post-New Deal. Uh, and I was covering what the unions were trying to do for Mondale, which was resoundingly unsuccessful in that it was completely a top-down uh, operation. And one of the things I'm trying to think of was the president of UFCW or the president of CWA. One of them made a, a video, uh, uh, arguing the case for Mondale. And, you know, in the course of covering this, I found some workers in that union and asked them, I say, did you see that video? And they said, yeah. Uh, and I said, well, what, what did you take away from it? And, you know, what they said was, Boy, that that guy, he's our president. He wore all this jewelry. Uh, he had rings. You know, I mean, it, <laughs> uh, I, I, I remember, uh, uh, you know, one of the lessons I, I learned here, uh, you know, uh, Lane Kirkland, then president of the AFL-CIO, put out a phone message to be, you know, that was uh, dialed in to all the union members whose phone numbers they had. They didn't know who the hell Lane Kirkland was, and there was no reason why they should have known who the hell Lane Kirkland was. The only, you know, and uh, Gary Hart clobbered Mondale. I mean, Mondale eventually won the nomination, but Gary Hart clobbered Mondale in the early states, particularly New Hampshire, uh, having, uh, you know, suddenly emerged as a big deal in the Iowa caucus, and they went to New Hampshire uh, the, you know, and he actually carried the union vote according to the exit polls in New Hampshire, where the unions were sure they were going to carry the union vote. And the only place, uh, where, uh, Mondale won big was in a little northern town in New Hampshire, Berlin, which, which fe uh, featured a, uh, was home to a paper mill. And in that paper mill, I forget what union that was, but, you know, they had the shop stewards talk one on one to the workers uh, about the difference between Mondale and Hart. Uh, and once the workers got off the job in the afternoon, there was a huge swell of votes for Mondale in uh, in, in Berlin. And that just illustrated and at the time, this was like a big deal difference between the top down and the bottom up approaches of uh, of of unions and just even dealing with their members. Uh, a lot of unions have, you know, gotten better on this over the years, but sadly, a lot of unions have not. Uh, and uh, I think when we see, uh, you know, strikes 
and organizing campaigns today, um, you know, uh, they are the product of uh, the unions that have uh, figured a bunch of this out. Certainly the Workers United uh, unit of, uh, of SEIU, which is not only organizing uh, uh, Starbucks, but, you know, a bunch of other places as well. So that's, uh, that's part of what we're seeing. What else in your experience that you've covered? I mean, you, you, you've also covered, uh, you know, sort of political issues where you found workers who weren't too uh, eager to talk about politics as such, but you were able to t- begin talking to them about their work. And that kind of revealed a bunch of things. What what, what lessons did you uh, take from that? You know, I, I think you went to a state fair or something like that, and you were trying to report on the people there and their their political leanings, and that didn't get you anywhere. But when you talk to them about their jobs or their work, I, I think that that uncorked some things. And uh, what, what 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 was that about? Yeah, that's funny. I yes, I was. I went to the Colorado State Fair, and this. I mean. The overarching uh, theme was looking at uh, Latino voters in Colorado, but and asking them about their political views and um, whether or not this narrative about Hispanics actually being conservative or like shifting to the Republican Party is true and just trying to gauge it. But and when I first when I first got there, like the first afternoon, I was like trying to just talk explicitly about um, so what do you think about Joe Biden or what do you think about Donald Trump? And like, I wasn't getting anywhere with that. So I had to like rethink, how am I going to, there, there, there's something here I want to tell, but I don't know how to get into what these people, what issues are actually affecting these people. So I, after I did like took a walk or whatever, got some food, sat down, <laughs> I, the, the, I started approaching my conversations where it's like, yes, I am a political reporter, but that's not really what I, what I want to talk to you about. I want to know about like what's going on in your day to day life. And I think we spend, we spend so much time of our lives at work. So how has work been playing out for you like the last two, three years since the pandemic started? And how is that different than what you knew before? And, this would usually like open up people to like immediately talking about how, how their jobs like fundamentally changed within like the last two to three years, whether it was, uh, these people, I mean, most of these people I spoke with didn't have the luxury of being able to work from home. So they were often like people who were working on the front lines and top it off where the state fairs in Colorado, it's Pueblo, which is a, um, largely Hispanic, mostly working class, middle class, community that was especially hit hard by uh, COVID. And I was able to talk with some people who were, who actually worked in like the hospitals nearby. And like, um, I think when it came to, or throughout the pandemic, there was like this, like uh, downplaying that would happen with uh, like among like conservative circles and a conservative media of like the severity of the virus and that, Oh, working class people don't actually um, need all the, don't want all these like restrictions imposed on their lives, like freedom, this freedom, that, but then you like talk to the people who are actually treating those who are suffering um, 
the worst of COVID. And they're talking about that. It was like pretty miserable, like watching people die, you know, and seeing just like, uh, this promise of them. I mean, again, this is, like I said, this is like a largely Hispanic, but a lot of these people are also, um, like either first generation or second generation immigrants who by virtue of kind of coming to this country, there's some sort of social contract that, um, implied that like, Oh, you have the opportunity to make a life here. And these people really just felt like that contract was broken over the last two, three years over how they were treated. And that's kind of, and I use, and I use that, um, that bedrock of a conversation to gauge what do they think about the day-to-day horse race politics that, um, typically makes headlines. And a lot of it was just like, just an extreme frustration and disenchantment with um, the distance from how they experience their lives day to day to what's considered uh, or what's like the big news story of the day. And I think like it, I think being able to talk to work was like clearly that gateway to get these people to really like open up about these issues. That's it for this episode of Prospect Generations. Hope you enjoyed it. Tune in next week to hear Prospect Senior Editor Gabrielle Gurley and Prospect Writing Fellow Luke Goldstein talk about city politics. Thanks for listening.